beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Welcome to this extra special episode of the 10 things to tell you podcast. Extra special because we are less than a week out from the launch of my very first book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. This book has been over a decade in the making. It is the hold-in-your-hand version of this show. So if you like the episodes and the prompts and the topics that we talk about on 10 Things to Tell You, you will absolutely love having it in book form. This episode today is going to be an excerpt from the book, a full chapter, as well as an excerpt from the foreword written by my wonderful friend Jenna Fisher and read in the audiobook version by Jenna herself. But before I share those things with you, I want to give a little context to what you're hearing and what the book actually is. So Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First asks 10 big questions, 10 big life questions, just like we do on this show. Each chapter is centered on one question, one prompt, one idea. Some of them are heavy and vulnerable, and some of them are light and fun, and all of them are meant to deepen your connections either with yourself, because I think these questions will make you quite introspective, or with someone else. 
I think that Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First works best as a buddy read with just one other person or with a group of people. Going through these questions together cannot help but deepen those relationships. Ideally, you'll finish the book knowing more about yourself and definitely more about the other person. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. I'm so excited to kick off this book excerpt from Share Your Stuff. I'll go first with just a few minutes of the foreword from my friend Jenna. Forward, read by Jenna Fisher. I met Laura Tremaine a few years ago when our kids were attending the same local preschool. One day, our boys conspired to have a weekend play date, and I found myself driving to the house of a person I'd never met hoping I'd have something in common with the mom of my son's new friend. When we arrived, we were greeted by a bright and chatty woman who welcomed us into her home and happily served us a giant bowl of queso and Fritos. Now, keep in mind, this is Los Angeles, 
the land of no carbs. No one serves Fritos and queso. In fact, you're lucky to get any kind of carb in this town. So I was super impressed when she confidently plopped down a bowl of processed cheese paired with a heaping pile of processed chips. I dug right in. Our conversation began with the typical ice-breaking small talk, with Laura inquiring where I'm from. I responded that I hailed from St. Louis, Missouri. Now, in my experience, most conversations tend to stop there, unless the person I'm talking to has a personal connection to the city or a weird fascination with the St. Louis Arch. But with Laura, there's no stopping. She simply paused and then said, Tell me more about St. Louis. What followed was a three-hour conversation about our journeys from our respective hometowns. I found myself discussing my hopes and dreams, motivations, successes, and failures, all with someone I just met. Laura asks a lot of questions. Yes, she's a very curious person, a voracious reader, and a constant seeker of information. But this compulsion to ask questions is about something deeper. She likes to facilitate connections, to probe and prod until she's discovered a place of deep mutual understanding. I came away from my initial time spent with Laura feeling a deeper sense of connection. She possesses a rare gift. Jenna is so kind. And also, I really want you to hear the rest of the foreword. You have to buy the book to do that. The chapter from the book you're going to hear today is chapter three, What Are You Afraid Of? So don't be scared of this question, pun intended. I know it's a big one and it's probably easier to start with a fluffier topic. But if I only get to share with you one chapter, I wanted it to be one that would really make you think. And naming our fears, even when it is terrifying just to say it out loud or in a journal, This can be paralyzing, but it can also be freeing. And I think that's true with a lot of the things we share or don't share. It takes a lot to be vulnerable and share our stuff on any topic, but I rarely regret it. Sharing something that means something to me, it makes me feel more sure of who I am. It is grounding. It is a confidence builder. It brings about connection in ways that staying silent never can. So I want you to listen to this chapter about fear and see what it brings up for you. And if you want more, I hope you'll go by, share your stuff. I'll go first. Available anywhere books are sold. I highly recommend the hardcover edition in case you want to write in the book. But if you like listening here and you like hearing me read it, then the audiobook version might be best for you. Or both, of course. I hope this section of the book speaks to you and I hope that you get even more out of the full version of share your stuff. I'll go first. Written and read by me, Laura Tremaine. Chapter 3. What are you afraid of? We're all afraid of something. Some of us carry that fear more tangibly than others. I pull my hair out. You might cry or feel angry all the time. Maybe you want to feel fear as a means to feeling anything at all. Maybe you fear fear, and so you go out of your way to avoid feeling it. You stuff it down. You're vigilant about it. Fear is powerful, which is why it is not easy to tell others about our fears. 
Talking about our fears makes us feel vulnerable, like we've strolled outside naked. Speaking our fears out loud can make us nervous that we might conjure the very things we're afraid of. Like everything else, there are varying degrees of fears. We might be afraid of outside judgment. Snakes and spiders might make us woozy. I don't know a single mother who wouldn't name losing a child as one of her most prominent fears. To make matters worse, the internet stokes every scary thought we've ever had. The earth is burning, the government is spying on us, our bad habits are killing us. All of these are true, by the way, which makes us more, wait for it, afraid. So why then this question? Why tempt fate and ask you to talk about your deepest fears? Because sharing our stuff drags it out of the dark and into the light, and everything looks better in the light. Maybe we'll see that what we're so scared of is just someone in a rubber mask. Maybe we'll see that we're all scared of the same thing. And that doesn't make it less scary, maybe, but at least the knowledge that we're not alone in our fears gives us a feeling of solidarity. We're going to talk about what we're afraid of because when we give that big monster a name, we take away the beast's power and give it back to ourselves. I'll go first. I am afraid of snakes. I am afraid of heights. I am afraid of being betrayed. But most of all, I am afraid I'm destined to be the victim of an in-home violent crime. And I don't want to brag or anything, but I had this fear long before the popularity explosion of true crime in pop culture made everyone afraid of being assaulted or murdered or robbed in their very own homes. This fear of a lurking boogeyman is real, and it runs deep. It started when I was a kid, left home alone for hours at a time with a vivid imagination and a fondness for Stephen King novels. I discovered Stephen King when I was 10 years old thanks to the literary taste of a neighbor down the street who kept a row of horror paperbacks on a shelf out in the open. I pulled one down to thumb through it, looking for the scary parts, or the dirty words, and got so sucked into Mr. King's storytelling that I started binging on his work and never stopped. This episode followed an obsessive fascination with the sinking of the Titanic, so I guess I've always leaned towards the macabre. In addition to King, I read everything I could get my hands on that had a cover with its title in a cryptic font. R.L. Stein, Christopher Pike, and V.C. Andrews were staples when I was young. I liked ghosts and mysteries and anything with a sinister twist at the end. But the stories were just an outlet for a fear that was already there, the fear that something bad was destined to happen to me. I was not the only person in my family who feared impending catastrophe. And the thing about growing up with a parent who thinks you're going to die at any moment is that then you think you're going to die at any moment. My dad was always afraid for us. He looked for emergency exits in every room and insisted on sensible shoes for the airplane in case we have to run. We always had a meetup plan in case someone got lost. Dad fretted endlessly about our safety. Two side stories from our family lore. When my brother was a teenager, he was crossing the street at the main intersection in our small town while my dad waited on the corner. An older woman ran the red light and hit Lance in the crosswalk. Mere moments after impact, he jumped to his feet to wave his hand and reassure dad that he was okay, then passed out cold in the street. 
Lance's first priority was to tell Dad he was alive. He was bruised and required some stitches, but he was fine. Dad still isn't over it. Another time, my sister Dawn was driving in a terrible rainstorm when her car hydroplaned and went into a deep ditch in the median. For years, my dad had preached at us that if we ever hit water in a vehicle, we should make sure to lower the automatic windows. We always laughed at this weird bit of advice. Why would we ever hit water? Who would think to roll down the windows if we did? But before my sister's floating car could sink, her hand hit the button to lower those automatic windows so that they opened before the power shorted out. This act likely saved her life. So are my dad's fears truly irrational? Or are they based in something supernatural? I'm still not sure. So, yeah, I grew up a little jumpy. And it is more than probable that my deep fear of catastrophe came from my generalized anxiety that something bad was going to happen to me, combined with my steady diet of horror and thriller books. I thought I knew the difference between fact and fiction. But if you are what you immerse yourself in, then I was always waiting for the villain to appear. And then something happened. Or rather, something didn't happen, but I'm convinced it almost did. I'm going to tell this story as plainly as possible because it matters to me and because it is the thing that turned a scared kid into a terrified adult. I was 12 or 13 years old, and our family was living in a rented house on the edge of town, nestled among trees and set back from the lone road that connected two highways. I was home alone after school, as usual and stood outside barefoot in the warm sun, bouncing a ball against the garage door over and over in a soothing, repetitive motion. The afternoons were my time to decompress. While I bounced my ball, my lips moved silently. I made up stories in my head. I replayed conversations and gave them different endings. I spoke aloud my fantasies about being popular, or a famous gymnast, or a quirky genius writer. This was my self-soothing routine and I was lost in my head when the van went by the first time. I must have clocked it, though, because when it creeped by again, I paid attention. I caught my ball and moved to the porch. The road in front of our house was paved, but usually quiet. A car doubling back and passing again was almost unheard of. The van was white and rusted down the middle side panel. It looked exactly like every van adults had warned me about, like the one in every story that ended with a missing kid on a milk carton. I got nervous enough to go inside, but I retained my wits until the van, on its third or fourth slow pass, made the slow turn into the driveway and idled toward the house. From my vantage point in the kitchen, where I was perched on the counter and peeking out the window, I could see the van's grill pointing straight at me. My heart started to hammer, and I slid down the wall until I was under the counter. My hand reached for the cordless phone and brought it to the floor with me. This is it, I thought. This is it. This is it. It's happening. The thing I've always been scared was going to happen. I could hear the rumble of the old engine, now just a few yards away, where the van had come to a stop in front of the porch. I could hardly think straight over the roaring in my ears. Had I locked the front door when I came in the house? I wasn't sure. I squeezed my eyes shut against the possibilities playing out in my mind. Was this really the end? Were all my fears of this very thing founded? I called one parent and then the other, with no answer on either line. When I chanced another look out the window, the van remained in the driveway, ominous. I watched for some movement. 
The van was pulled too far forward for me to see the driver or if it held a passenger, and I couldn't see any activity near the front of the vehicle. Did that mean a person was just sitting there, or had someone gotten out and I'd missed it? After a long few minutes that felt like weeks, I reached someone at my dad's law office, and I whispered frantically into the phone. I need help, I said. I am very, very scared. There is a van. To her credit, the woman on the other end of the phone acted swiftly. She put me on hold while she made a few phone calls of her own. Nothing changed while I waited, crouched and shaking on the kitchen floor, but it felt good to have shared my fear with someone on the receiving end. Someone who had the power to do something. Someone who, if these were my last words, got to hear them from me. I was almost paralyzed by the fear of what might happen next, but I had to know if the van was still there and if someone had gotten out. I repositioned myself at an angle from below the counter so I could see just enough of the circle drive where the van sat idling and concentrated hard on memorizing the exact shape and the rusty side panel so I could describe it later if necessary. It was not my imagination that something was very wrong about the situation. I had been staying home alone after school for years. As nervous as I could be about unexpected occurrences, I had dealt with strangers ringing the doorbell, creepy phone calls, and the like. This was different. I knew it was different. I felt ice in my heart when I looked outside. There was evil there. The woman from the law firm came back on the line to tell me she had tracked down a neighbor. This is the benefit of small-town ways, where everyone knows someone who knows someone who lives close by. Before I could register that the van was starting to amble up and out of the driveway, I spied a man in boots and wranglers walking down the road to our house, who fit the description I'd been given of the person coming to check on me. We were both startled when I threw my arms around him and sobbed, releasing my pent-up anguish from an episode that, if memory serves, lasted about 20 minutes total. When my parents got home that night, they were confused by my hysterics. They were just sure there was some explanation. Maybe the van was checking out property, or maybe it was looking for the right address for a delivery. No, I said over and over and over again. No, 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 no. I knew it was something bad. I could feel it. Something wasn't right. My parents were sympathetic to my fear, but they didn't believe my gut instinct. They knew I read all those scary books in an effort to assuage my real-life fears of horror and assumed it was just my imagination run wild when surely there was an innocent explanation for why that old, crappy van had pulled into a driveway where a lone child had stood playing under the trees. I stopped staying alone after that, for as long as we lived in that house. My hypothetical fear suddenly felt all too real. I started walking to the library after school instead, or went to friends' houses. It was fine if everyone thought I was just being a little emotional over the whole thing. I'd just make the necessary adjustments myself. My fear of something ominous happening to me did not abate with age. I moved from reading fictional stories about scary things to reading and watching true stories of murder or near-death experiences. I watched first-run episodes of Forensic Files and read book after book about famous serial killers and their crimes. It wasn't just entertainment for me. It felt like preparation. When I left home, I went on to live in a college dorm, a sorority house, apartments with roommates, and then, eventually, alone. In all of these living situations, I could conjure fear of an intruder. Some of the groundwork was already laid for me. 
Ted Bundy had made sorority house murders into a common paranoia, so much so that one night, when I lived in the Theta house, we evacuated dozens of sleeping girls in the middle of the night because of a shifty man who wouldn't leave the parking lot. This is a true story. And also, a few of our more upstanding members refused to decamp to boyfriends' living quarters, claiming they'd take their chances at being murdered before sleeping at a fraternity house. When I moved to Los Angeles with a crime rate 10 times that of anywhere I'd lived before, the stakes of being a young, single woman in the city got even higher. I did everything I could to feel safe, and most of the time, I did feel safe. One bonus of being part of an enormous population is that I always felt comforted that someone would hear me scream. For most of my 20s, I never really got super scared, even while living alone. I stayed hyper-aware, but the particular fear of becoming the next Dateline victim took a hiatus for a while. My true crime consumption ramped up as it became more popular to portray tragedy as entertainment, but my real-life fears subsided. And then I got a house-sitting job. Mr. Cody was the guest on a local news show where I was working for the day. He and his wife had just relocated to L.A., and we struck up a conversation over the snack table. When I mentioned that the production gig wasn't my normal day job and that I was just looking for ways to pad my bank account, Mrs. Cody asked for my contact information. A few days later, she emailed with an intriguing offer. As it turned out, the Codys traveled quite a bit and needed someone to care for their beloved cats. They didn't want me to simply feed and water the pets while they were gone. They said they would really prefer it if I would stay at the house for the duration. I could water the plants, bring in the mail, and see to other menial tasks. The pay was more than sufficient. I leapt at the chance to earn easy money, but I was a little hesitant based on my quick assessment that the Cody's were high maintenance and particular about their home. Still, every dollar counted, and I had no real excuse to say no. The Cody's home high in the East Hollywood Hills was breathtaking, with incredible views of the city. I was bowled over from the first time I set foot in the modern marble palace filled with art and sculptures and all-white furniture. All things considered, their list of requests to me as a house-sitter was pretty low. They had grown children, so the cats were now their great loves and took top priority. They were generous with their facilities, encouraging me to bring my laundry and pointedly, boyfriends, if I had them. I demurred the implied question. They did have one condition. I must sleep in their master bedroom. At the time, this did not ring the alarm bells it should have. My brain was already churning over the idea of staying in this big, secluded house alone, and all my old fears were starting to crowd my mind while I attempted a polite smile amidst all the instructions. Also, the master bedroom was undoubtedly the prettiest, with floor-to-ceiling windows and a sprawling bathroom with not one but two huge glassed-in showers. In some ways, it felt like I was staying at a hotel for the long weekend. With cats. I house-sat for Mr. and Mrs. Cody every few months for years, and those days in that big, cold house were the only time I felt afraid during that season in my life. It wasn't just the quiet location or the insane square footage that made me feel unsafe. There was something else something I could never quite put my finger on. Mrs. Cody was always appreciative and complimentary and continued to insist I sleep in the master bedroom and that I was welcome to bring guests. I thought she was just being accommodating or trying to be cool to the young girl she paid to stay in her home. Until. The Codys had a few locked rooms in their home. I assumed this was for safety or that maybe there were some very valuable things inside. 
I never thought anything about it until late one night, for reasons I don't remember, I turned the handle of a door to a room that had always been locked, and it opened. I found myself in a small space, probably meant to be an extra bedroom. The walls were lined with bookshelves, and there was a desk in the corner of the room with multiple computer screens configured on top. Beside the computer was unmistakably some advanced video editing equipment, and on the shelves, rows and rows and rows of tapes. The tapes weren't labeled in a way that made any sense to me, but I got chills with the sudden knowledge that there were cameras in the house. Cameras everywhere. And I must sleep in the master bedroom. And overnight guests were fine. And now I couldn't breathe. I turned around, closed the door, and left the house immediately. I returned early the next day to feed the cats and retrieve my stuff, and then I vowed to never, never, never set foot in that space again. In light of the makeshift editing room in the home of a couple who had no business in professional production and had made no mention of a video editing hobby, a lot of the more unusual aspects of this house-sitting situation started to make sense, and I felt sick to my stomach that I had let my desire for extra money eclipse my rational common sense and intuition. I talked myself out of listening to my gut instinct because the Cody's seemed relatively normal and because it felt dramatic and dumb to believe them to be malicious. And yet here I was, in an obviously dicey situation. The weirdness of the Cody's reignited all my old fears of something sinister happening to me when I was unaware. And then something did happen when I was very, very unaware. On a beautiful September morning in the fall of 2018, I met an acquaintance at the door for a midday meeting. It was so beautiful outside that we decided to settle in the backyard at the long outdoor patio table just steps from the house. The French doors to the kitchen and the upstairs balcony above us were thrown open, letting in the California sun and breeze. Kelly and I worked outside for several hours, with laptops open and my dog, Kona Rocket, at our feet. I wandered in and out of the house to fetch water and then my wallet. My guest and I talked animatedly, making plans and dreaming big. When it was time to walk Kelly to the door to leave, I led the way, chatting and talking with my hands. We entered the kitchen and walked toward the laundry room, headed through the house to where she had parked her car on the street. I was so lost in whatever I was saying that I almost got to the door before I realized it had been broken in, shattered glass all over the floor. I did not scream. Kelly couldn't even see why I had stopped so abruptly. I turned on my heel and I directed her to go back outside, go back outside, go back outside. Someone had broken into my house. Were they still inside? I had my cell phone in my hand, and Kelly listened wide-eyed as I described calmly to 911 that there had been a home invasion, one possibly still in progress. Despite all my years of fearing something just like this, the details were not what I expected. The day was so sunny. Everything was quiet, except that the birds were chirping. I was side-by-side side with a person I barely knew. And we were trapped. The only outdoor gate was locked from the outside. When that realization dawned on me, my slightly delayed reaction sent my breath up into my throat. With the phone still in my hand, I turned to face the house and stared hard at all the back doors open to the patio. Was that movement inside? Was someone about to come out after us? Kelly and I stood paralyzed, not speaking, clutching arms. 
Relief washed over me when I heard the voice of the neighborhood security guy over the fence. He unlocked the back gate from the driveway, and as we hurried through, a sound erupted from inside the house, causing him to draw his weapon and Kelly and I to put our heads down as we fled. From across the street, we stopped and stood, breathless. In my driveway, the security man trained his gun on the back door, and we were all poised, ready to move at the next sound. It never came. We stayed in our positions until the police arrived and declared the house empty. While we were waiting, pacing in disbelief, I went over the scenario in my mind. Kelly and I had been outside with the doors and windows open just feet from where we were working. We never heard the glass or door break. We never heard anything. My sweet dog hadn't so much as raised his head in alarm. I was busy tying the whole thing up in a bow in my head, deciding that maybe nothing had really happened. Maybe this was much ado about nothing, like the white van in my driveway all those years ago. Surely whoever had broken down the door had seen Kelly and me sitting outside chatting and had fled. We'd probably dodged a bullet. This was my mindset when Jeff arrived from work after my shaky phone call full of apologies for bothering him over what was likely a near miss. He waited with me outside while the police completed their sweep of our home and was standing beside me when the officer came out of the house looking grim. It's a mess in there, he said. Jeff understood his meaning right away. I, on the other hand, was in such denial that I thought he was insulting the cleanliness of our home. Our upstairs was ransacked. Our master bedroom and home office looked like a bomb had exploded. The intruder had dumped drawers, torn art off the walls, and pulled dressers and bookshelves out from their places. My beautiful jewelry was gone. Every piece I'd ever received, including my wedding rings. Designer handbags and old electronics had also been taken. The rest of our stuff was just everywhere. On the floor, on the bed, spilling out into the hall. How could this have happened? How could someone be tearing apart your home while you sat in the yard, laughing and peaceful? This disruption had to have been loud, and it seemed impossible that we hadn't heard anything. Now that someone had actually broken into my home, and I had heard absolutely nothing, would this heighten my fear, even though I had not been harmed physically? After the robbery, I stopped working from home for about a year. I joined a co-working space, and any time I was tempted to stay home alone and get some work done, the sun and the quiet and the birds chirping spooked me so badly that my hands would start shaking, and I would pack up and leave the house quickly. For a time, my fear of it happening again grew exponentially, and Jeff cut back on his travel. But after a few months of turning the robbery over and over in my mind, the acute fears did begin to dissipate. I didn't let go of the fear completely. I still feel nervous and superstitious now as I'm saying this, but I somehow felt more in control of the outcome and less terrified of an unknown assailant. My lifelong fear of becoming a victim to violence culminated in a home invasion that happened right under my nose and with no resulting injury. It is my hope that it marked the end of these stories, these brushes of terror. I'm choosing to believe that for now, anyway. Maybe our fears are based in the real possibility of losing the things most precious to us, a loved one, our health, our safety. Maybe they're an intuition of some kind working to protect our hearts. Or maybe it's just culture preying on a primal human response. Or maybe we inherit the things that terrify us from generations that have gone before us and survived. Fear, for the most part, seems to be about control. We are afraid of pain, 
We are afraid of uncertainty. We want to keep sad and scary and unhappy things from happening, even though we know it's futile. Pain comes. Hard things come. The only thing we can control is our response. Your turn. What are you afraid of? I understand that the question itself is scary. Most of us have no desire to dig into our greatest fears. You may be thinking, what's the point? This will only make me more afraid. But I want to reiterate that naming your fears takes their big monster power away. When you acknowledge that you fear something, the effort of pushing that thing down in a way is removed, and you can feel how much energy you are giving to trying not to be afraid. This might not translate to fears about roller coasters or spiders, but for the stuff that keeps us up at night, trust me when I say that talking about it does not make it scarier. I wish I had investigated my fear of being murdered a long time ago. Would it have changed anything that happened or didn't happen? Maybe not, but I would have felt better. Sharing in the right way and with the right person always makes me feel better. I respect your trepidation about answering, what are you afraid of? So let's talk about it. Fears about sharing your fears. Number one. People will think you are being dumb. Well, they might. The thing about fears is that they really run the gamut. My deep fear of snakes is irrational to my reptile-loving husband and children. They tease me about it endlessly. But if you're going to learn to be a sharer, you'll probably face the fear of sharing itself at some point. Once you've become a little more used to being vulnerable, you won't care so much if people think you're dumb. It's the paradox of sharing. Once you do it repeatedly, after you experience how it breaks the chains inside of you, you care a thousand percent less what others think about it. Truly. Number two, somehow, by sharing your fear, you will manifest it. I don't know if this superstition has any legs, but I get it. I don't like to say things out loud lest the universe take it as an invitation. But if you really think about it, do you truly believe that is how God works? Do you really think that a spiritual being misunderstands and takes a spoken fear as a wish and then forces it upon you? No. That just doesn't seem right. I don't believe that. It's too twisted. I do think we can learn great lessons from our fears, whether they come up naturally, because many fears are a part of life, heights, home invasions, disease, death or you choose to confront them through therapy or role-play or whatever. Our fears can be our greatest teachers. Number three, you actually take comfort in your fears. I know this doesn't apply to everything we're afraid of, but sometimes we might get so comfortable with our fears and phobias that the idea of dropping them altogether is as scary as the fear itself. We can create cages around the things that scare us and then shape a life around them. I'm thinking of health obsessions, fears around flying, and sheltering our children to the extreme. If you think you might be taking a fear to a place that is regularly affecting your life or the lives of others, please seek some help. I want freedom for you. Do you think you can tell someone about the things you're afraid of? Start with what scared you as a child 
instead of what scared you last week. And then, upon further exploration, see if those two things are related. 10 Symptoms of Anxiety and 10 Ways I Treat Mine Let me be clear that I am not at all a medical professional, but I have spoken publicly about my lifelong struggle with anxiety and my journey to make peace with the ups and downs of mental health. I am forever indebted to those who have shared their own experiences with depression and anxiety, so I wanted to give you a basic idea of what anxiety feels like in my body and the tools I use to alleviate it. What my anxiety looks like. Number one, can't take in a full, deep breath. Number two, heart racing. Number three, inability to yawn. Number four, constipation. Number five, headaches. Number six, irrational anger. Number seven, weepiness. Number eight, looping repetitive thoughts. Number nine, feeling impending doom. Number 10, unexplained body aches and pains. How I feel better. Number one, mindfulness meditation. Number two, hydration. Number three, journaling. Number four, deep restorative sleep. Number five, full body massage. Number six, doctor approved medication. Number seven, Pilates, yoga, dance, or anything that engages the body. Number eight, therapy. Number nine, therapy. Number 10, therapy. So that was chapter three of Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. If you liked listening to it, the audiobook is a great option. If hearing it made you feel like you really need to run to your journal, well, you just might want to try the hard copy. Of course, if you're an ebook lover, that option is available too. Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First is my debut book, and I cannot wait for you to read it. Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First is available wherever books are sold. Go to shareyourstuffbook.com for more information about the book and 10thingstotellyou.com for more information about this show. I'm on Instagram every day at lara.tremaine, and you can find the show at 10 Things to Tell You. That's the number 10 things to tell you. Thanks for listening. Now go buy that book. just listen to the 10 things to tell you podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10 things to tell you.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 things to tell you. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.